Good afternoon, good evening, this is Dove Tuzman and you're on Equal Footing. We are going to delve into a pretty intense, personal, personally affecting show tonight. It's our third part in a three-part series on rescuing the rescuer. This time it's about the psychological and emotional toll that lawyers endure. You know, we don't think about this a lot. We think of the, cl- the clients, you know, the defendant in a criminal case or the plaintiff uh, in the government's case of prosecuting a crime and getting justice for victims. But we're turning the lens around to the lawyers that are out there doing yeoman's work, doing work that's incredibly stressful emotionally, psychologically. And this is the third in the series because we've been talking about the care that the caregivers need in our society, turning that lens around to, in the first show we covered, uh, ministers, rabbis, and priests, and even therapists that minister to and help people in need, whether it be spiritual crisis or mental health needs. The second part of our Rescuing the Rescuer series, we talked about doctors, medical providers, in that case an emergency room doctor and a nephrologist, dealing constantly with trauma and death and dying and the stresses that they endure. And tonight we're covering, like I said, the legal profession and what it feels like as a defense lawyer when you can't save a client, so to speak, from a horrible outcome like incarceration or massive financial loss. Or if you're a prosecutor, not being able to obtain justice for victims in the case of a failed prosecution. I'm so grateful to our guests tonight for opening up on this topic. We're not going to be talking about the practice of law but the human side, what it's like to be in that seat and really um, be responsible for, in a certain sense, the, the future of, of an individual or the, uh, the feeling of security for a community in the case of prosecutors. Okay, let's get into our three guests. I'm joined by Amanda Blaurock. Amanda is a general counsel, so she works directly with Uh, entrepreneurs, business people, other individuals across all of their legal needs, whether it be uh, corporate law or civil litigation or even criminal defense uh, issues. She's been in the industry for about 20 years. Her legal practice has focused a lot on international law in both the public and the private sectors. She's represented, in addition to individuals, the United States government in her work for the U.S. government in the uh, air, in the trade area. She's represented Fortune 100 companies, and as I said, lots of entrepreneurs. Amanda has a BA from Rutgers University in psychology and Japanese. I always forget that about her background, and she has her juris doctor from Temple Temple University. She has uh, practiced law in Colorado, California, and Washington D.C. Uh, she's been admitted in, in several different jurisdictions, and. She's actually channeled her legal and business expertise into the community and founding in 2017 the Village Exchange Center, which has leveraged millions of dollars in government, foundation, and private support to grow a not-for-profit that helps uh, 
refugees and immigrants in the Denver, Colorado area. It's been recognized all over the country and is Village Exchange Center's executive director. Amanda not only develops programs, but is also, also manages a $13 million uh, budget. So Amanda brings expertise across both business and law. We're also joined by Chris Ferguson, and Chris is a partner at Costellanitz and Fink, which is a well-known uh, law firm that is uh, across both uh, corporate law and uh, defense, civil defense and criminal defense. He's represented clients accused of a variety of white-collar offenses, including tax fraud, bank fraud, mail and wire fraud, securities fraud, and antitrust violations. Chris has been recognized by super lawyers in the white-collar criminal defense practice area. He's a member of the New York Council of Defense Lawyers and is the former secretary of the Criminal Law Committee of the New York City Bar Association. So a very well-regarded uh, attorney with a lot of experience across decades. He's the proud father of three children, and as much as he enjoys the law, Chris reports that his favorite occupation is that of a Little League baseball coach. So you, uh, you had me on that. I'm a huge baseball fan, as a number of listeners know. We're joined again on the show by a previous guest, Benny Forer, who brings a prosecutor's perspective. And Benny, I, I think, is on the line. He was running out of court to get on uh, to get on the show on time. He's a veteran criminal prosecutor with experience prosecuting cases from narcotics offenses to gang murders to complex white-collar crime. And he's currently a member of the prestigious Cyber Crime Unit in Los Angeles County. His job focuses on complex technologically-based crimes and sex crimes including child pornography, solicitation of minors, and other cybersex crimes. Uh, Benny also is a professor. He lectures at University of South Cal- uh, Southern California's School of Engineering. He teaches cyber and privacy law to undergraduate students, and his courses there are geared towards helping forensic professionals identify potential privacy pitfalls and assisting pre-law students in understanding legal issues. And Professor or Benny Forer is an internationally recognized and experienced lecturer on matters generally pertaining to criminal justice and law enforcement. I also love the fact, I always like to mention, Benny's been on the show before, that he's also an ordained rabbi. How many rabbis do you know that are prosecutors? So, Amanda, Chris, Benny, welcome to Equal Footing. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's dive in with you, Amanda. Uh, we bring different, you guys bring different perspectives to the show from Benny's prosecutorial perspective, Chris as a defense lawyer, but Amanda, you work with clients closely across their whole lives, you know, everything from their trust in a state's law to even criminal defense when it comes up. So to some extent, you probably have the closest relationship with your clients, at least before you enter into the legal fray with them. And I should disclose to the audience, because many listeners know, I've gone through my own extensive and kind of gruesome legal battle over a number of years, and I've worked with Amanda on that. So uh, disclosure up front that uh, there are some things that, that uh, may be emotionally triggering for me, so I'll do my best on the, on the show to, uh, to remain objective. Amanda, what is it, what is it like, how close do you allow yourself to get? Let's start with that, with your clients knowing that, you know, to some extent, someday you may find yourself in the position of being kind of responsible for their physical or financial security. Oh, that's a good and complicated question. I think it's, 
it's dependent on the individual. As a general counsel, you're dealing with a landscape of legal issues um, for clients, and oftentimes with clients that could be anything from offensive to defensive litigation that's personal from divorce to to criminal or partners that they no longer can work with. So you really get into a lot of the kind of depths of a client's um, life in a different way just to understand it. And, and general counsel work, you're really touching on almost every aspect of your life. So I would say you get relatively close, um, close as you probably will ever get to a client. I imagine that, Chris, in your practice as a defense lawyer, you're working with both corporations and, and individuals, and you probably are entering into the fray once there's already a serious problem. Do you allow yourself, I guess, to, to get uh, emotionally invested or personally invested in your, in your cases, or do you, do you feel like you need to be dispassionate to be effective? Um, well, the answer really is both. Um, I think part of being uh, a good lawyer to your client is, entails constantly navigating that line um, because your client, and I, I'm going to, I'm thinking right now more in terms of individuals, but a lot of this would, you, you know, it, it gets because the emotional intensity is generally higher there. But the, you know, your client is relying on you to be a, on the one hand, a dispassionate counselor um, to, you know, add that layer of um, removal, have a layer of removal from the emotional intensity of the predicament in order to give uh, sound, sober advice uh, that's not tainted by some of that emotional intensity. But, um, you know, on the other hand, you're, you're not a robot. Uh, and if, uh, in my opinion, if you're not emotionally invested uh, in your client's case, you can't be the passionate advocate that they need. Um, and your client needs to feel, needs to really feel that you are in it with them. And you, you can't fake that. There's no way that you can fake it. Um, and so I, I, I find that you're always navigating that line between the dispassionate counselor and the passionate advocate who is who is emotionally invested in your client's situation and outcome, and um, the more intimately you know over time, you generally tend, especially with an individual, to become more intimately involved in their life and their situation. And the more you are, the harder it is to navigate that line because it's not an on and off switch. It's clearly a very um, but, sensitive issue because if you look at even in popular culture and in, in TV and film, there's so many movies about the lawyer-client relationship or the prosecutor-victim relationship. And there's this idea that we have that there is a profound righteousness on both sides. There's also the tropes of, you know, the the, the lawyer who's, you know, being an advocate but doesn't believe in their in their client. But more often than not, it's that proximity and that passionate advocacy for justice that that we that we see in the in the in the role of the of of the lawyer, especially in the criminal uh, defense or criminal prosecution realm. And I want to dig into that a little bit more before we turn to you, Benny. 
on the prosecutorial side. Let's take a, a, a quick break and invite folks to participate in this conversation on rescuing the rescuer, the psychological and emotional toll, in this case, on lawyers when they can't save their client from a horrible outcome like incarceration or when a prosecutor can't obtain justice for a victim in the case of a failed prosecution. We, we don't turn the lens around enough, I think, and appreciate the extraordinary stress that that is endured in this industry. So you can participate by calling 718. We're on, we're on live, so 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. If you uh, call in, just please be patient. We'll get you as soon as we can. You can also text a question either via SMS or via WhatsApp to 917 917- Four two eight four zero six two. That's nine one seven four two eight four zero six two. Okay, we got the formalities out of the way. Benny, I was referring to that popular culture kind of motif, if you will, of the of the prosecutor who's righteously crusading on behalf of victims. Is that is that a is that myth real? Is that accurate in your experience? And to what extent do you allow yourself to get emotionally invested in your cases, or do you feel you need to be dispassionate? Same question I ask, Chris. Um, thank you for having me again. It's good, it's good to talk to you and be part of this panel. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, to the extent it is, to the extent it isn't. And, and the, the distinction is that Necessarily, prosecution is an emotionally charged thing. You have a you have a you have an emotionally charged individual who's been harmed by somebody else. But um, the dispassionate portion is that we're not that individual's lawyer. We're not supposed to be that individual's lawyer. We're the, the, the lawyer the for vic- society. And the victim. Way. We're not. You're not the the victim's lawyer. Is that just to clarify? Correct. We're not. Yes, we're not the victim's lawyer. We're the we're the lawyer for society for the state, and so. Um, in that regard, it's 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 a little bit difficult, um, and, and these are always emotionally charged situations, whether it's a theft or whether it's a um, it's a more um, serious crime or a violent crime. There's emotional charge in those, um, certainly from oftentimes from victims or witnesses or involved individuals um, and the prosecutor. So it, it, the nature of the case um, really does matter. Sex crimes, murder cases are have much more significant emotions involved than um, than white-collar crimes, for example. Um, so in the nature of how a prosecutor gets emotionally invested in it is one part, but also when you use the term justice, that's one of the difficulties of being a prosecutor is balancing the victim's interest with society's interest, and sometimes they're right. not consistent. And some, sometimes you end up saying to a victim, I'm really sorry that this negativity occurred, but that's not, you know we're not giving the death penalty to someone who stole your pension. Right, and so that that that's sometimes the balance as well of it. We're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to come back to you again, uh, Benny, to to kick us off in the next segment. We'll be right back on equal footing, talking about rescuing the rescuer. It's our third part in a series. This time, talking about the emotional and psychological toll that lawyers endure when in their profession in general, but particularly when they fail to save a client from a horrible outcome on the criminal defense side, or uh, there's a failed prosecution and, and victims don't don't get justice. I, I am really appreciative of our guests, Amanda Blaurock, Chris Ferguson, and Benny for for being on and being open on this sensitive subject. We'll be right back.
Cool Footing is partially brought to you by DocuVax. Are you a small or medium-sized business owner who wants to provide a low-cost, effective health benefit for your employees? Maybe you're a school administrator who wants to ensure all of your students have the right vaccines. Maybe you're a parent just trying to keep your family's medical records up to date. Well, welcome to DocuVax. DocuVax is an easy-to-use digital locker accessible on your laptop or smartphone. It allows you to safely store and validate basic medical information, including your immunization records, lab results, even x-rays and MRIs. Gone are those frustrating days of losing time tracking down old medical records or sharing test results with a new healthcare provider or insurance company. The DocuVax system covers over 60 different important elements of your medical profile, from COVID, flu, and tetanus vaccines to colorectal and breast cancer screenings to blood type and allergy information. To sign up, go to DocuVax.com, that's D-O-C-U-V-A-X.com, or call 833-859-1933, that's 833-859-1933. For as little as $6.99 per month, DocuVax subscribers can privately access all of their medical records from a secure HIPAA-compliant digital storage facility. And as a DocuVax subscriber, this is the best part, medical professionals are on call for you literally 24 hours a day to validate your vaccine records, your blood test, or anything else in your digital medical locker. Important to note, your medical data on DocuVax is never accessible to anybody but you unless you want to share it privately using a proprietary QR code-based system so your data is secure at all times. Your medical information does not belong to your doctor. It does not belong to your insurance company. It belongs to you. Take control of your medical information. Sign up at DocuVax.com or you can call 833-859-1933. Mention that you heard on you heard about DocuVax on Equal Footing and you get an additional free two months up front. Operators are standing by. I've been All right, you're back on Equal Footing with our guests, Amanda Blaurock, Chris Ferguson, and Benny Forer, talking about the emotional and psychological toll on lawyers, especially in the criminal arena. Okay, Benny, you're a prosecutor. You've prosecuted everything from narcotics offenses, gang murders, white, white collar crime. How, when you, when there's a prosecution where you're, you are absolutely certain that you were in the right, but you lose, because I'm sure that happens sometimes. How do you cope? Do, how invested have you become? Do you go and apologize to the victims? Do you go, you know, sink your sorrows in a bottle? H- how do you deal with that as a prosecutor, that burden? Um, it's a great burden because um, prosecutors have, uh, I'm sure all, all attorneys, um, have these extreme highs and extreme lows um, based on that. Um, there's cases that you emotionally invest yourself in, preparing, working, organizing, thinking about, contemplating uh, on behalf of an individual, and then, you know, you have a jury or, or come back not guilty or a judge dismiss the case, and um, you, there's no words for that. I, I once, for example, had a murder case that at the preliminary hearing, which is uh, the equivalent of a grand jury, I guess, but we do it in California. It's in front of a judge, the, the defendant's present with their attorney, and it was a murder that, that was... 100% the individual committed this murder, and the judge dismissed it at the preliminary hearing, finding that the person acted in self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the victim's pa- family, his dad was a pastor, 
um, and his family were decent people. He 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 was he was doing some bad things that put him in this situation. But um, I did I completely disagreed with the judge. But the judge made a factual finding. It, it, I I had no I had no words for the family. What what can I say? Um, and you you experience that, and you take that home with you, and it sits with you. You you, you know you go outside and say, "I'm so sorry. I don't know what to tell you. This is where we're at." And um, you bear the burden. It's the the, the 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 ire is directed towards you, not towards the judge or the or the court system that I can this, uh, occurred. So it, it is difficult. There's a variety of different ways uh, to switch subjects on this slightly, but similar tangent, which is uh, you know dealing with sex crimes. Um, you know, and and one of the things I do is deal with child pornography. Those days that I get a, a child pornography case in, and I have to file a case and deal with that case in order to ensure the filing is appropriate i have to go through the evidence and those are extraordinarily difficult days extraordinarily difficult um and to go back home um with that is is it wears on you it's it's days that you sit there and say uh yeah i'm really sorry i can't give the kid a bath today i I just can't deal with that today i can't be in that situation In, in your own personal life so you you certainly experience trauma and deal with that and and everybody has their own methodology uh, of dealing with that trauma. Thank God I have a loving family, so I don't drink. But, um, you know, it could very well lead to that. You know, in doing the pregame research for this show, I came across a stat that was in the same same study that we referenced a few weeks ago in our second part of the series when we were dealing with medical providers, doctors, and nurses that are constantly around trauma and death and dying. And it is that the legal profession, but particularly criminal defense lawyers, I'm sure this is also applicable to prosecutors, uh, it's it, it's in the top five of, pro, of professions uh, in terms of the index of depression, uh, anxiety, and addiction. And I imagine it's the same as, as well with uh, you know, emergency room doctors. And it, it's got to be just an enormous stress. So Let's open the Pandora's box on on that note, Amanda. I warned at the outset of the show that there's there's a very uh, personal element here. When you were my general counsel many years ago, and I had this sudden um, arrest where I was arrested while I was traveling on a business trip, and I ended up in a in a in a horrible uh, detention location overseas. You, I was so dependent on you. My life literally depended on you. And for years, I've wanted to have the opportunity to turn the lens around and get a sense of what that was like for you. Because I think it can, it, it would probably touch anybody that's dealt with a crisis, whether there's a caregiver, whether it's in this case a lawyer or a doctor or a therapist, whatever that comes to us in our time of greatest need. How did you deal with it? What do you want to share with respect to your experience working with clients, whether it's me or or other clients that have dealt with massive crisis? Yeah, I think when you're being asked to kind of step up and be present um, for a client when they're in crisis, it's it's really looking within and finding your own peace. And I think what was said earlier about finding that, that fine line where you need to be the rock where your client can rely on you, but you're still dealing with crisis yourself because in the situation like the one in Colombia, it was very difficult because I was physically going in and out of a prison that was ran by the cartel. So that physical kind of fear and 
situational stress that I was under just physically being daily in Bogota and in and out of a prison when I don't speak fluently the language and kind of dealing with the with the stress of your emotional state plus my own personal safety. Um, it was it was very stressful, but I think, you know, the, the biggest thing that I learned was really having to find my own solace and my own ways that I could cope, um, dealing with, you know, different healers and, and different, relying on different kind of relationships that I had that I could lean on at the end of the day after a 15-hour day in and out of the, of the prison. So I, I do think it's critical to, to really find, um, those other coping mechanisms when you're there for clients because you really can't be effective counsel if you're emotionally leaning on your client. So in that case, that was a, a little bit more complicated than normal. This, this may sound like a, this, I'm not going to censor myself. We'll see how this sounds. But when I was there and I was, I was detained on a white collar uh, charge in the United States, but I was in Colombia for a few days when the in- indictment was unsealed, unfortunately. And so I ended up incarcerated in Colombia for about 10 and a half months awaiting the ability to come back to the United States, just as a brief summary for listeners who, who are not aware. But I wonder after you would visit me in prison and I was getting, you know, beaten up and other horrible things uh, happened to me there. Did you, were you able to just go out to dinner? I mean, were you able to like clear your mind and kind of walk out of the prison and go back to your hotel? And you must have had to kind of return to normalcy. How did you, how did you do that? Or did you do that? Or did you have to just live with the, with that trauma like overnight until the next day that you would, that you would come in and, and, and see me? I mean, you lived with it overnight. I, it was very, you know, in that situation, kind of dealing with the other companies and kind of the ramifications of your life when you were unable to do so as your general counsel, it was walk out of the prison and then immediately on calls until I went to sleep and then up at 6 a.m. to drive the two hours out to the to the barrios of, of Bogota. I mean, it was a very, there was no time to relax. And I think, you know, dealing with the ramifications of that type of situation took me years to recover from, honestly, and, and to really understand what that fight or flight feeling that you go into. Um, I, I've never done criminal law prior to this. So that was my kind of, you know, trial by fire to really be present and learn, you know, both a case of first impression where there had never been an extradition of a nonviolent, non-narco-trafficker in the history of Colombia. So there really wasn't any precedent or any lawyers I could even rely upon. So it became a very stressful situation to get counsel in the United States and Colombia. And then, you know, you at one point became suicidal. And I think you've talked about that on this show, so I, I, I know that that's okay to share, but that was a very difficult thing as well to kind of understand what it meant for me and what my place in all of it was to rescue you or make sure that you were okay. So the stress factor, um, that entire 10 months, I, it probably took me years to come come down from that, to be honest. And I, and I will be forever grateful because you were literally a lifesaver uh, for me. I have talked on this show before about that, about asking you to smuggle me something in so I could kill myself and you refusing and so forth. It was a, 
uh, absolutely surreal uh, and painful experience. To depersonalize this for a second, and I want to turn to you, Chris, on a similar topic. My understanding, Amanda, without betraying any confidences, is that years later you had another client that had a, 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 a legal issue and ended up incarcerated in the United States. And I'm wondering if, and this would apply to, to all three of the guests, I'm wondering if, in your case, Amanda, that second time around, where, uh, if, if you handled it differently in terms of your own self-care and, and, you know, apropos to the theme of rescuing the rescuer, how did you handle it the next time? Or, or maybe I'm wrong in terms of the way I've characterized that. Um, in that case, it was in the United States, um, so the fear factor wasn't the same, although it was in Alabama in a place that I didn't feel safe. I, I would drive at night back out to Florida. Um, but I definitely had a different type of relationship. It wasn't an ongoing general counsel situation. This was a person who I was just acting as counsel in this specific situation because he's an immigrant and was somebody that had a lot more complicated, a lot more complications with the case. And I was getting him out of jail and making sure that he wasn't stuck in the federal system with ICE. So that situation um, was stressful in that he was emotionally distressed and his family was distressed and just kind of being there. But I definitely had different boundaries because I wasn't a general counsel with him. I was just acting in one specific case. I think general counsel work is, is probably one of the more difficult types of work because you're just dealing and holding space for every aspect of somebody's legal landscape. So right. it's not just one case. You've got everything. It's a good segue in terms of the same point that I was bringing up earlier, Chris, around the fact that lawyers, particularly criminal defense lawyers, are in the top five professions for depression and anxiety and addiction. And Amanda was talking about the, the kind of the trauma that you guys have to live with. Do you think she's right that it's harder for general counsel? Are you able to compartmentalize uh, more? Does anything that Amanda said resonate with you in terms of the, the feelings, I guess, of, of trauma or post-traumatic stress in your work? Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I think one of the things that um, actually resonated about what, what Benny had said was the, the, his comment about the extreme highs and lows of this profession. And uh, I think there's probably something about each of us that uh, makes us gravitate towards that. Um, and the, you know, the, the also sort of the theme here of the, um, you know, I think that's common amongst people in this profession is that kind of savior complex that you, mm-hmm. you, you want to be that savior for your client who, um, in any situation, um, is up against, you know, whatever the situation may be, but they're usually, you know, in my case, they're they're fighting against the awesome power of the of the federal government, and you're standing in between them. And um, you know, there there are highs in that situation when you can deliver great results for your client, spare them incarceration and things like that. But there there are also um, you know incredible lows because you're invariably you're not going to be able to do that a lot right. of the time, and and. Um, and so I, um, yeah, I absolutely, you know, the, the, the situation that, that you went through and Amanda was describing, I mean, that is any time I think that 
a client is incarcerated, you know, a lot of my cases I have the luxury that the, the client, and, and, and it's still stressful in a lot of ways, but if the client is, is out, it's a whole different situation than when the client is, again, forget about, you know, the situation that you described. But even here, um, in a, when the client is incarcerated, it adds a level of intensity, of stress, of urgency, um, you know, especially, uh, of course, pretrial, um, that um, I, I, I completely related um, to what you were, were both discussing uh, in terms of you, you just you carry that with you uh, yeah. all the time. I honor all of you guys for being on the show and talking so openly about the emotional and psychological toll that uh, lawyers endure, particularly in the criminal law arena. Your last comments, Amanda and Chris, reminded me of the quote from uh, Michael Haller, who is a great attorney, who's also a great novelist and, and writer, and he said, there is no client as scary as an innocent man. So. So we'll be, we'll be right back on Equal Footing, continuing this, continuing this discussion. We've gotten a number of text questions. If you also want to participate in this discussion on rescuing the rescuer, turning the lens around to the, the toll that's endured by lawyers in the criminal law arena, call 718-303-9090. We'll be right back. La vie est belle et cruelle à la fois. Elle nous ressemble parfois. Je suis né pour n'être qu'avec toi Equal Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. So we're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman here with our guests who are all eminent lawyers. Amanda Blaurock is Chris Ferguson, Benny Forer, in alphabetical last name order, just to be clear, not putting one above the other. You know, one of the th- great things about live radio vis-a-vis like podcasting is you get immediate feedback. So in our like 90 second break, I had <laughs> a listener send me the full quote from Michael Connolly, uh, that I was, uh, quoting first and, and, uh, I, I seem to have mixed up uh, the figure in the in the uh, novel and the writer. So here it goes. This is this is from the Lincoln lawyer, and I thought it was worth reading. And it's obviously two two characters talking in a novel. You know what my father said about innocent clients? He said the scariest client a lawyer will ever have is an innocent client, because if you f up, I obviously can't say that word on on FCC regulated radio. Because if you f up and he goes to prison, it'll scar you for life. 
he said, there is no in-between with an innocent client. There's no negotiation. There's no plea bargain. There's no middle ground. There's only one verdict. You have to put up an NG up on the scoreboard. There's no other verdict but not guilty. Levin nodded thoughtfully. The bottom line was my old man was a damn good lawyer, and he didn't like having innocent clients, I said. I'm not sure I do either. I thought that was great. Thank you for the listener who sent that in. Benny, I want to ask about the relationship between defense lawyers and prosecutors and the fact that you're all under enormous stress. You have great burdens on your side. There is a trope. Uh, trope sounds negative. There is, I think, a, a general perception that behind the scenes there is camaraderie. There's a good relationship between the defense lawyers in a given jurisdiction and the prosecutors, and there's good lines of communication. But in my personal experience and my own dealings in the criminal justice system, my battle for a number of years, I didn't experience that at all. There was tremendous animosity between uh, the prosecutors and and even my defense team, and maybe relates to that last point because I continue to affirm my innocence in my in my case. But depersonalizing and in general is there camaraderie or is there animus between those communities Benny in your experience my experience is I work in Los Angeles County and Los Angeles County is the largest county by far in the United States with the most experienced district attorney's office anywhere in the United States Um, and so that part of it makes it a very wonderful experience Um, my relationships with my defense attorneys that work in the courtrooms that I work, um, and overwhelmingly are extremely positive. We have very good relationships. We understand each other. Um, we understand the value of cases very often. We understand the, the game, so to speak, of how it's played and, and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, um, what each side is going to do and plans to do. So um, in, in those sort of uh, environments where, like, like you know, I'm, I'm a DA for 15 years in, in Los Angeles, and and there's many, many DAs of my generation and older. Um, we're an extremely experienced group of attorneys, and so we understand each other. There's inevitably going to be fights, but I would say the relationship that I see myself having and my colleagues having are, are very uh, good with our defense attorneys. And I think that's generally a positive um, for the clients. That is to say that a defense attorney I have a better relationship with, I'll tend to be... I don't want to say the word more lenient, but more understanding of. Um, I've had defense attorneys come up to me um, and, and who I have good relationships with and, and uh, tell me, hey, uh, that's the wrong guy. <laughs> you got an innocent guy there, or you got him for the wrong thing. I've had that tip-off a few times. Um, uh, can I give an example? Yeah, please do. Do I have time for that? Okay, a recent example is we had a, we had a situation where an individual was identified in a massive identity theft scheme, and one of the identification pieces was him going to a bank machine and withdrawing money. Um, and, you know, they're not the most clear videos, but the, 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 the picture of the individual looked very similar to the individual I arrested um, as part of this scheme. And one of the lawyers on, um, uh, for, it was a multi-defendant case, one of the other lawyers um, said to me, look, I don't think that guy's involved. Um, and I was like, well, we have pretty good identification from various stuff. So what we did was me and this defense attorney sat down and we watched the interactions between the client. And I, I asked the defense attorney, you, you pay attention between the interactions of the various individuals and you tell me how this guy interacts. And, and, you know, he came back and said they, they really didn't interact at all. They didn't even know who each other were. 
Um, I think that this guy might be the wrong guy. Wow. And we looked into it, and it turns out it was. So, you know, I relied upon their their knowledge and their good, good on very Good on you, Benny, for wanting to get to the, the bottom of, of it and actually uh, achieve yeah. justice. Good on you. But but the flip side of that is is that in less experienced situations, and not specifically talking about your case, but I would say is there are certain agencies that tend to have much more transient sort of uh, attorneys involved. They work there for three to five years. They go back to their big firm. Um, there's a much less professional relationship, um, a much less awareness of each side, and, and certainly um, a much more sanctimonious attitude towards it. Um, a, we, we work through that in misdemeanors when you're at L.A. County D.A. You, you work through that young, heated um, antagonism that you might have, and you deal with it on extremely low-consequence cases. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get up and you're dealing with ser- serious cases, we're past that point as a general rule. That's really interesting. I would with, never with have known that, that there's actually almost like a learning curve that goes on vocationally where the new defense attorneys are kind of working on lower, or maybe on the prosecutorial side as well, on lower consequence cases of so those relationships are developed over time. Really interesting. Yeah. Amanda, yeah, I mean, in, 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 in my case, in inter- sorry, go ahead, Benny. I just want to add one thing. There's a caveat to that, and the caveat is the significance of a case. When it comes to sex crimes cases, that sort of thing might change immensely. I just want to make that, that, that pretty clear. When it comes to sex crimes cases and, and family violence type cases, there's an extraordinary animosity sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it, it, the, without taking away those cases, my, my statement holds true. Right, okay. So, Amanda, in my case, which was obviously a white-collar uh, case, my perception, you may correct this because I was incarcerated during this time, is that there was almost from the outset, given the circumstance of me being arrested abroad and so forth, that there was kind of a CYA, cover your bum type of dynamic going on and that there was a lot of animosity. There wasn't really any positive line of communication between the prosecutorial team and the defense team. Was that your experience? And or and if so, do you think that hurt the situation? Is there, is there anything that could have been done better from either side? So part of choosing um, criminal counsel is is really ones that have a relationship with the prosecutors, and we thought we did that, and I think there may have been a breakdown of those relationships, which, you know, it would be interesting to have that conversation with um, our criminal attorneys that we chose, but that was part of the interview process when I was choosing which criminal counsel to actually work with is do they have a good relationship? Can they make a phone call? Can they have a working kind of situation where we can actually have a good line of communication? And I don't think that there was, and it may be that the higher-ups in the in the chain on the prosecutor side were the reason that it didn't happen that way, but initially we thought that there was. And I do think it's critical, and I think you could probably speak to that. Chris, in your experience, is there this camaraderie uh, between the uh, you as a criminal defense attorney and a prosecutor in a case? Do you feel like there's a, a line of communication? Do you feel like you're heard, and can it help your clients at times? Um, so the answer is it depends on the prosecutor. It depends on the office. It depends on the case, and I think that's what we've heard a lot so far. So, I mean, obviously – you know, personalities are what they are, and you have you can have a better, you know, relationship with some prosecutors in an office, and just and just butt heads with with, with others because of either 
dynamics between both of you or or there are some who are just some prosecutors you know in my experience who just um you know they 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 view the entire defense community including including the lawyers with 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 skepticism but but that's the exception i would say and uh, my approach and 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 you can have likewise on the defense side right um my i've always found that it is not effective to go in um and be you know constantly sparring with the prosecutors and constantly uh you know uh, making accusations um and that that that's not going to be effective on an individual case it's not going to be effective long in you know in the long term for your clients so by and large i always approach um you know, a case from the outset, trying to have some kind of rapport with the prosecutor, if you can. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's even prosecutors, as we've been discussing, who you might otherwise get along with, but the dynamics of the case are such that um, that makes that very challenging. You may have to make arguments on your client's behalf that are, you know, uh, are calling into question the agent's behavior, or maybe mm-hmm. in certain instances the prosecutor's behavior, and you have to do that, um, right. you know, to be effectively representing your client, and that can, you know, that 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 sometimes can get personal. Um, from a, from a so human it, perspective, in terms of because the topic of this show is uh, is about the caregiving, the care that needs to be given to the caregiver, so that the the self care that's needed in the legal community with the incredible stresses that you guys endure. Is there, at a human level, case strategy and the kind of the, the legal process aside, do you feel an emotional camaraderie with the prosecutors? Is there a sense that we're all part of this incredibly stressful milieu? We're doing our best. We're advocating on different sides, but we, you know, we recognize the mutual stresses and, and feel like we're kind of on the gener- generally same team from a psychological perspective, I guess. Uh, who's that question for? for? For you, Chris, as a follow-up. Okay. Um, hmm. So, to a point, I think that there is, uh, and, and there are certainly friendships that evolve between um, the prosecutors and defense side, um, and you can um, look, uh, you know, as Benny said, the ultimately the good prosecutors are out not you know, just for a win, but for justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ones that you know can do that and you can have a trusting and rapport with and kind of, and feel to a certain extent we're in this together. But you, I don't think that you um, can, that, that each side can really truly empathize with the types of stresses that are on the other side. Um, you re- mm-hmm. to, to, at a real core level, if you're on the defense side, the um, you really are looking for fellow defense attorneys to understand what it is you're you're going through. And mm-hmm. you know, just for an example, at my firm, and maybe this is a, a very trite expression, but there's the reference we have a reference to, and you know, other defense firms to when someone, a prosecutor, comes from the other side having their badgectomy. Um, you mean because, because just to clarify for the audience, when it, when someone who's been a prosecutor uh, quits that job and, and joins a uh, criminal defense practice, correct, correct. Because whatever you do, to, a badgectomy, you know, I love that. So you know, and 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 that's even you know amongst again most you know men, most prosecutors um, 
you know, can, can, can see both sides of the equation, but whatever you, whatever profession you do, you do it long enough. It, 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 it skews you in certain ways. And, and so that's just to my point that really, I, I think that, um, each side, uh, yes, you can get along and yes, you can empathize with one another to a, to a certain extent, but at a, at a really deep level in terms of what you're experiencing every day. Uh, at least from my experience, you know, I, I'm commiserating with fellow defense attorneys. Got it. We're going to come right back after our last break and re-engage at an even deeper personal level and also take a couple of uh, questions we've, we've gotten by text from our guests, Amanda Blaurock, Chris Ferguson, and Benny Forer, talking about from both sides of the, of the criminal law perspective as defense lawyers and as prosecutors, the discussing the emotional and psychological toll that that they endure in this incredibly stressful and critical profession we'll be right back I almost don't want to read this promo because I, I love that song. I just wanted to keep playing. Okay, grateful at Equal Footing for the sponsorship by Manhattan Medical. This is a sensitive but very important message for not only men but men's partners who are listening, and it's about having enjoyable sex and the emotional pain that can come from erectile dysfunction. Manhattan Medical, which is based in Manhattan but available to clients on a, on a virtual Zoom basis from anywhere in the world, world, utilizes a new and extremely effective gains wave therapy to treat erectile dysfunction. It can help you achieve excellent results. There are no expensive blue pills. It's non-invasive. It's surgery-free. It's painless. With Manhattan Medical, there are no side effects and, for most patients, wonderful results. Manhattan Medical's Gains Wave Therapy can help you. Some listeners know this sponsor came to this program through a friend of mine who's in his mid-80s and has used the Manhattan Medical Gains Wave Therapy program to achieve, again, a satisfying sexual life. It can help you. Call now for a free consultation. If you mention Equal Footing, you get that free consultation, I should have said that, which has a $200 value. So mention Equal Footing when you call. Call 888-EDQR9. That's 888-EDQR9 or 888-332-8739. That's Manhattan Medical with their Gains Wave Therapy at 888-332-8739. Call now. I've been caught Okay, we're back on equal footing. We're talking about the emotional and psychological toll endured by lawyers in the, in the criminal law arena, both defense attorneys and prosecutors. We don't have much time left. I want to get to the personal side of what brought you into this field because I think that'll help address as well the, the, the self-care that you find yourself needing to to access now. So just going to go kind of around the virtual room, so to speak. Amanda, a little bit different in your case because you didn't start in criminal law, but what what brought you to to the law in short form? Actually, I, I did start um, with a criminology certificate in undergrad, which got me interested in prisons and prisoners. Um, but I just had an interest in working... Um, 
internationally. I, I really wanted to do international trade, intellectual property, work with clients with multi-jurisdictional assets. I, I always knew that I wanted a career where I could travel um, and also um, have a position where I could effectuate um, in a bigger way. So that's, that's how I got into law. How about you, Chris? What brought you to the field? Um, I would say probably the the um, most influential uh, part of my life for that was was I after college I briefly was a paralegal at the Manhattan DA's office um, and that's still probably to today my favorite job um, and the uh, and it just the actually it was really I think the human element of it in that job where you saw you were in the you know, working now in the biggest city in, in the world, or, um, and just watching every day the stories that the, the stories that were going on in the street were unfolding in the courtroom. You know, every day, and mm-hmm. and there was such a camaraderie as well between uh, in that office between the the ADAs on a different side of the human element. Um, I you know I thought that that's what I was going to do. Actually, going into law school for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, uh, I ended up. Uh, you know, on the defense side, um, and um, I mean, during law school, I worked at a criminal defense firm, and 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 really took to that as well. So, you know, I think as I, I mentioned before, that some of the psychological elements, the, the, the savior complex, and things like that, I'm sure, all factored into into the mix along the way. Right. Um, but that was probably the most. Um, that was probably the turning point. And Benny, how about, how about you? What led you to become a prosecutor? Um, I think what Chris just said uh, a little bit. Um, it's a sense, uh, I, I have this strange sense of justice or fairness that I can't seem to let go. Um, and I, and I, I mean, it was primarily I have a great uncle who who was a real civil rights warrior during the real civil rights era of the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, who did some amazing work, argued 10 cases in front of the Supreme Court involving constitutional First Amendment and um, saved um, three black men from the death penalty by arguing their case successfully in front of the Supreme Court and, um, you know, starting the NLRB and being part of that in the ACLU and being part of that in the early days. So I think that gave me my sense of justice. Um, and it just, once I uh, entered the prosecutor's office, I realized this is definitely the place for me. It That's really interesting. The moment I entered. Chris mentioned working at a, on the prosecutorial side and then ended up as a defense lawyer and you mentioned working or, or it's being inspired by the defense side and ends up as a prosecutor. That's fascinating. We have a question from a listener that I want to direct to you, Amanda. Uh, I'm just going to. Uh, read it verbatim. It does not seem possible for an attorney to be emotionally invested in every case. Uh, actually, sorry, that's a different question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that maybe in a moment. Um, so, Amanda, this is a question I want to ask you, a question coming in from a listener. How often does an attorney on either side have to stand in front of a mirror and honestly confirm that what you are doing is for the right reasons, be it morally, spiritually, and so on? Now more than ever, it seems to me that there's a very large gap between what is right and what is legal. Can you comment? That question's for you, Amanda. I think I probably speak somewhat for all of us that everyone has a right to effective counsel, and I think all of us probably do it to a certain extent because we know that everyone is innocent until proven guilty, and if you believe that, you can actually be an effective lawyer. So I, I have a 
you know, with any client that I've ever dealt with, and specifically in a case like the complexity of what happened in your case down in Colombia, regardless of whatever could be right or wrong, no one should endure what you endured in a prison for 10 months in a foreign country where they have not been convicted, where you normally go to jail, you're stuck in a prison with hardened criminals for life. I mean, mostly lifers there. So it's it's a very, it's a good question, but I actually think that um, it's kind of the basics of why we become attorneys. We just believe that we should represent somebody and that they are innocent until they're guilty and that people have a right to good counsel. Benny, another listener's question that I was I, start, I incorrectly started reading for Amanda, uh, directed it, it at you. It does not seem possible for an attorney to be emotionally invested in every case. How do you choose? I've used criminal lawyers before, good ones, and much of what is done seems to be procedural and based on quote-unquote keywords or quote-unquote legal jar- jargon that will be picked up by the judge and the other side. It feels almost like a game. Uh, the, I mean, to, uh, to extent that's true. Listen, there are some cases that there's nobody who has any real dispute over the guilt or innocence of the individual. Uh, well, I say my my perspective, guilt. I mean, say the, 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 everybody knows what this is, and everybody knows that the, you know there's no real dispute or there's no reasonable beyond there's no reasonable doubt to this guilt, and so then the the lawyers role often changes to their negotiation tactics and their ability to mitigate the potential sentence that a person might face. You're certainly going to be less, far less invested in that type of case than an emotionally charged case, like the, the quote you read, um, which, which involves right, you know, representing an innocent person that you believe is innocent is going to have a fundamentally different impact than someone you know is guilty. So they're going to have different types. And then it's all, as from a prosecutor's perspective, it's also the nature of the victim. Um, you know, cyber was very dispassionate. It's very dispassionate because it's, it's very objective. It's not based on subjective observations of witnesses. It's based on objective um, electronic trails. Um, there's a victim who's harmed, but that, the harm that's, that's to the victim is, is not a physical. It's not endangering their lives most of the time. So it's far less emotionally charged than other cases, you know, uh, Right now, I'm, I'm supposed to start a murder trial in a you know, one next week. I'm supposed to start a murder trial, and, and certainly the the victim's family is extremely emotionally charged right. in this case, um, and, and it makes you much more emotionally charged. We've been talking to Betty Forer, who was just speaking. He was a veteran veteran criminal prosecutor in Southern California. Chris Ferguson, who's a criminal defense attorney based in New York. Amanda Blaurock, who's a personal general counsel and based in Denver, Colorado. I want to thank you guys for opening up about the emotional and psychological toll and the dynamics of being a lawyer from the human side. We have so many things we could cover. I want to apologize to the callers that patiently waited. I'm sorry we didn't get to you. We'll have to do a follow up, follow up on this, on this topic. Thank you all for the work that you do on both sides of the equation. And I hope you continue to be able to give yourself the self care uh, that you merit and that those of us who are clients or victims of crimes can better appreciate the extraordinary toll that, uh, on you guys. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Benny. Thanks, Doug. Thank you for having us. Take care of them.